Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Good morning, City on a Hill. All right, John, you can give me that, that startup music I asked you for. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, just set the tone. Yeah. Yeah. You reminded me, I'm like, why am I not doing this? All right, if you've got a friend in the room, real quick, I just want you to go up to them, tell, give them a high five, say, I'm glad you're here. Go. Go. You got a minute? Because we got to get, we have work to do. A little fun, right? All right. You can fade that down, John. Today we're going to be talking about a number of things. You're going to hear me tell you a thousand quotes, and I'm going to be telling you lots of stories today. I came with meat, Pastor James. I came with meat, Pastor Joe, Pastor Linda. See, on a hill, I came with some meat. If you want it, you got to take it from me, though. All right? So pull it out of me. Encourage me. i got a lot of material, and I'm only going where God leads me. So let's do this. I'd like to read a quote before we open up in prayer. I should like to see the power of any in the world destroy this race, this small tribe of unimportant people whose wars have been fought and lost, whose structures have crumbled, Literature is unread, music is unheard, and prayers are no more answered. Go ahead. This is an Armenian poet. Destroy Armenia. See if you can do it. Send them into the desert without bread or water. Burn their homes and churches. See if they will not laugh, sing, and pray again. For when two of them meet anywhere in the world, see if they will not create a new Armenia. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. It talks about the bonds of friendship amongst a nation. Is that true for you? When you see another member of City on a Hill or another Christian, do you create a new church right there when you meet? Funny story. So you guys know about my restaurant history. I've been in the restaurant for a, a while. And in one of the first restaurants I worked in, I was a waiter like anybody else, right? So, and you guys might have heard the story before. So I quickly moved up the ranks, and I became like this hourly guy. So I was overseeing chefs. I was overseeing um, uh, the, the serving staff. And we had this new manager come in, and something happened on the floor. And I'm at the computer terminal trying to deal with something. And the GM, the general manager, comes up, and he's like over here, and he just starts screaming at me, right? And he's upset. He's stressed. I get it, you know, and that doesn't really phase me. But over there, in this station here, there was the pastry chef, and the pastry chef looks over at me when the, when, when, when the manager walks away and says, Naeem, you got to break something. So I'm like, dude, I can't break anything. No, 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 no. So I hear, I got you. And with that, he drops a stack of plates. Yeah, I woke you up just now. He drops a stack of plates, like big rounds, probably like $100 worth of plates on the floor. Just shatters them. <laughs> I know, I woke you up. I'm sorry. So that's the kind of friendship we're talking about today. Now that you guys, uh, you've experienced a little shock and awe, all right? We're talking about friendship where we're not talking about uh, balcony friends. We're not talking about even family friends, because family friends, they're, they're a little biased, if we're being honest. We're talking today about war mates, help mates, lifesavers. The difference in a friend that we're talking about today is their function. We're talking about people that share our trials our adventures, and our burdens. Today, we're talking about David and Jonathan. And I title this, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. The rock is Jonathan. The hard place is the situation David finds himself with Saul. So before we begin, can we pray? You guys awake now? All right. Lord Jesus, we just ask and we just thank you, Father. You're already here. Your presence is already all over this place. Your presence is all over every heart that's here, Lord Jesus. Have your way in this place today, Lord. Unleash the word, Father. Lord, may your people dine, Lord, on who you really are and what a friend you are to us and what it is that you deposited in us to give away, Lord Jesus. We bless this time. We bless this congregation, Lord, and we just thank you, Lord, for joy and peace and revelation, Father, and power that it would just speckle this place, Lord. We just thank you for that right now, Lord Jesus. In your holy, holy name, amen. So, let's go back to another quote. No, no, I'll go back to that. So, who's Jonathan? We spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about David 
And can we all agree David's been pretty amazing? Who's enjoyed the David series so far? I have. I've loved it. But I've got to be honest with you. I have a new favorite in the Bible, and his name is Jonathan. It hit me this morning. I was talking to the worship team this morning, just filling them in on what I was going to share. And maybe, I don't know if you ever do this. You ever like get close to something, and then you can't get too close, or else you're done? So now I'm in it, so waterworks are going to be flying everywhere. Jonathan is amazing. Jonathan is the first picture. I won't say the first picture. But he is like the largest picture, maybe because I've been in his life, that I've ever seen of what a Christian man is supposed to do. Or a Christian is supposed to carry themselves. So let me just tell you about Jonathan. Jonathan is who? He's the son of? Saul. Excellent. Very good. We first are introduced to Jonathan... In 1 Samuel, and we were introduced to him with a simple introduction that Saul and the Israelite army had gathered around 3,000 soldiers. That's it, 3,000 soldiers. 2,000 were with Saul, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. So Jonathan's in command of 1,000 soldiers. It also tells us that amongst the 3,000 soldiers, there are two swords. One for Saul, and one for Jonathan. That's it. And we hear that Jonathan goes off and he basically defeats a garrison of Philistines in Geba. And I'm not going to read too much. I've tried to paraphrase this, so forgive me. I'm not going through all of it. I'm trying to cut a little bit of a narrower swath here. So he's about 20 years old at this time. And this Israelite, around 20-year-old with 1,000 soldiers, defeats a garrison of Philistines. What happens? A buster call comes out, goes out. The Philistines gather, and they don't just gather. They gather like uh, uh, the Persians on the shore of, of, uh, of Greece. And it says here in 1 Samuel 13, 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 uh, 3, chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped in, Mik- in, Mil- in Mikmash, east of beth when the Israelites was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves, thickets among the rocks, pits, and cisterns. So this 3,000 sees this huge army coming at them, and they just scatter. The Bible says the army goes from 3,000 people to 600. And Saul has the 600 with himself. And we hear, and we read in here, that Jonathan slips out to handle some business. Can you give me that picture of Jonathan? This isn't an actual picture of Jonathan, but... It's important to note, you guys see the first slide. These are actually the places, Benez, I'm sorry, Bozes and Seneth. Second slide, thank you. That is our picture of Jonathan. And you're thinking, oh, it's a rock climber. Yeah, there's no ropes on this rock climber. You see, what made this victory so crazy is that on top of these two peaks were Philistine troops. On, on, on one hand, on, on one cliff there was one group, and on another cliff there was another group. And Jonathan goes there. He doesn't tell anybody. They're looking for him as you read through. Like, where's Jonathan? Where's his armor bearer, right? The, the guy that, you know, the armor bearer carried his armor, but he also was a fighter as well. He helped protect him, right? So Jonathan goes, and he basically says, I'm going to go pick a fight. Now, the way to these cliffs was unguarded. Because no man in his right mind would climb up a rock face without any harnesses. I mean, back then, they didn't even have harnesses. So it was unheard of. This is the first free climber in the history that we know, in, in modern history. Go back to the first slide, showing those cliffs. And we see this exchange. In 1 Samuel fourteen six. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, from saving, whether by many or few. This guy's pretty bold. Were you guys still with me? All right, good. This guy's pretty bold. So he goes, right? And they devise this plan. And they say, basically, if, the, if, if they yell down and say, come up to us, we're going to go up to them. If they actually call us out and say, we dare you to come up here, we're going up to them. His armor bearer says, do as you wish. I'm with you. Let's ro- ride or die, Right? And it's very clear what happens. He kills about 20 men. It's an, it's, it's an acreage of about a, uh, an acre of property, if you will, but up and down. And we know there's, well, maybe the armor bearer has a sword from the other one, from the other battle. 
But this, this is the victory that ensues. And what happens now to Jonathan? He just defeated a garrison at Gaba, and he just turned the tide of a war that they were horribly losing. Saul is making mistake after mistake after mistake. So Jonathan is the Israelite champion. He is the prince. He is a warrior, and he can back it up. He is well-liked. He is, uh, they don't tell us if he's handsome or not. I don't see any descriptions of him. But the man knows what he's doing. You put him in charge of people, and he knows how to run things. So David's not even on the scene here. And this is something that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. I just learned it. David and Jonathan are probably somewhere between 18 to 20 years apart. This happened in David's way youth. I don't even know if he was conceived at the time. So we understand that David would have grown up hearing the stories of Jonathan in their culture. Does that make sense? Let's go over to this outpost where these uncircumcised men are. Does that sound like somebody we know that we've been talking about? David would have also known who Jonathan was and looked up to him as a hero, given the age difference. Now, there's no account of David and Jonathan meeting before this time. What we do know is that David is, excuse me, playing music for the king when he has these distressing spells. David's going to the court and playing music for the king. Now, the king was pretty mad at these times. I don't know if there's anybody in the room or not, but in the court, David is the harp player, just for clarity. He's the harp player. He does other things, but at this point, he's just playing the music. Now, when we get to the Valley of Elah, right, and we have the battle between David and Goliath, so David arrives on the scene. He's come from the field. He's a little shepherd boy. He doesn't have any fine clothes, per se. He's the run of the family, as James was talking about beforehand, and also despised by his brothers. So he shows up with the bread and the cheese, or as Pastor James likes to call it, the gluten and the cheese, right? And he kind of gets yelled at, and his mouth starts talking, and he starts saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And it goes all the way up to King Saul, and they call him in, and he said, listen, I'm going to take care of this for you. I got this for you, right? And Saul puts his armor on him, and he rejects it, and he goes down in the field. Now, we don't know if Jonathan was in the room when David was talking to Saul at that moment. We can assume so, but we don't know. We do know this. Now in the battle, now, now in the battle when David is confronting and talking to Goliath, we know for a fact that Jonathan was watching. Jonathan was the head army guy. He, he was the general. You know, the, the king's most trusted advisor, if you will. In this moment, we can say, Jonathan heard this. And David says to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Now, he's yelling this. This is a bellow. So everybody in the valley is hearing David just, Right? This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine, I will give you to the carcass, give your carcass, to the Philistine army, to the birds of the air and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now, David didn't say my hands. He said our hands, right? So this is the proclamation David's making down there, right? And I think I might have even shared this before. So you have the scene, and this is just me. This is how I how I think. You have the scene, right? David's winding up his rock, his stone. He slings it. It hits Goliath square in, in his head. He dies in that moment as he falls, falls, falls to his face. David doesn't stop running. He keeps running, grabs the sword, cuts his head off, holds up the head like a Medusa from like a, 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 the Odyssey, right? Freezing everybody. Like, what the heck just happened? I believe, this is just me, that in that moment, Jonathan's eyes were opened. In that moment, Jonathan understood, my life is over. I've just met a man that I love. In that moment, he was, it was clear. The the only way I can describe it is a movie. How many people have seen The Count of Monte Cristo? All right, so you remember Edmond Dantes, he gets imprisoned falsely, right? And they put him in in the Chateau d'If, and he's in there, and he meets a friend, and and he gets out after like years and years and years of torture, he swims two miles to the shore, right? He finally gets on the shore, and he's tattered, he's r- ragged, he's beaten, and there's a group of pirates there, right? 
and the pirates have a problem. The problem is one of their members, Acapo, had stolen money from them. So they're about to kill him. So the pirate, king, the pirate captain says, listen, you offered me a solution. You're going to fight my man to the death. Whoever wins can come on my crew. This way, the people on my crew that love Jacopo will say that at least gave him a chance. He's like, it's just one problem. Jacopo is the greatest knife fighter I have ever seen. And with that, we know that the Count, uh, that, that uh, Edmond Dantes bests him. He, he, he beats him with, with the knife and he stands over him and he says, if you value your life, don't move, don't say a word. And with that, Dantes says to the captain, listen, save him, leave him alone, we'll both join your crew, and you'll have two fighters and yada, yada, yada. The, the captain agrees, and Jacopo reaches up and just faces him and says, I am your man forever. This is important because that is the, 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 that is the power of the statement that Jonathan is making to David and what's coming next. I am your man forever. You've spared my life. You didn't know who I was. I was a stranger to you. I am your man forever. You just fought for me at pain of your own death. We already see the Christian uh, implication there, right? All right, so let's keep moving. So what happens? We see that Donathan... uh, 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking to Saul, Jonathan became one spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. I can stop right there. And another theme. So I am your man forever. My life for yours is, is, is what that means. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword his bow, and his belt. Jonathan has just removed his physical identity from himself and placed it on a shepherd boy. David would have been identified very, very easily as a peasant. He came out of literally a field to drop off cheese and just kind of walked into the battle, did his thing, and said, all right, well, I'm going to go back and play the harp. What do you want me to do now, King Saul? And then here's the son and says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I am your man forever. Here's my, here's my, this is what identifies me as the son. Here's my tunic. This is what identifies me as a general. Here's my sword. This is what protects me in, in battle. Here's my belt. This is what holds up my sword. I'm going to give you everything that I use to fight. I'm going to give you everything that I use to defend myself. I'm going to give you everything that I use to identify myself. It is all yours. big? When he did that, he also, by doing that, said, I'm not going to be king. I am no longer next in line. You are clothed as I am, so you are the heir, because I'm not wearing those clothes anymore. I'm, I, I, you are the king. Do you understand what kind of reverberations, just from that moment alone, just from that alone, went through? You understand that Jonathan had brothers as well. We know about David's jealous brothers. Now they really hated him, right? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. When you think about the battle of David and Goliath, What's funny about it is anybody could have fought Goliath. They were in a sling culture. They did not have weapons. Everybody knew how to use a sling. And I'm sure there were professional slingers in the army. Did you ever think about that? The sling was a weapon. It was a common weapon. Common. Meaning many people used it. I imagine the people that were in the army used it much more often than David did to scare off bears and lions. David's time being spent practicing his harp, and then running over to the king. I'm sure he picked up a few things from soldiers, showing him little tips on how to sling. But he was not the greatest slinger in the Israelite army. Anyone or a number of different people could have fought Goliath. They did not. David did. The amount of regret and seething that probably happened in that moment is probably unimaginable. 
And if it wasn't for the character of David, because the Bible says that the people loved him. They loved him. He wasn't an arrogant man that he should boast. What Samuel had said. Let's go back to Samuel. This is, I don't know, I don't... So he gives, Jonathan gives David his identity. But this is also repetition of the fulfillment of what Samuel says to Saul. Now mind you, Samuel and Saul are also friends. Up until, well, before. But in Samuel 1, 13, 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. It not endure. It will not pass on. Saul is watching the manifestation of a prophecy before his eyes. The Lord has sought out, sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people. Then we jump to Samuel 1, 15, 27. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe and tore it. And Samuel turned to him and said, the Lord, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one that is better than you. Oh. My heart caved in when, when, it, when, it, when it finally stuck. Like I read it a thousand times, but when it finally stuck from a friend, those words, I believe, there's no biblical part, I'm just telling you my opinion, fueled Saul's rage. The one that is better than you. He would never see Samuel again. Those are the last words from a friend. The man that anointed him as king. That backed him. Gave him grace. More chances than probably what he deserved. Those were their, that was their parting words. Let's come away with that. So we see that a friendship should do what? What should a true friendship do? Just from the text. True friendship should change your identity. We can stop there. I'll keep going though. The shepherd is now clothed as a prince, carrying the prince's sword. The prince is now clothed as the shepherd. Who is in deficit? Who, who, who did it cost to be friends? It cost Jonathan. Everything. David's jealous brothers. I, I talked about that. Okay. All right. So then, and I'm just kind of going through the story. Next, we see David just being attacked by Saul. Saul has literally, and you know, Pastor James is always talking about throwing spears at David, right? He's sending him on suicide missions, right? And we know, because the Bible tells us, that basically, Jonathan's like just keeping him alive. But here comes the question. Have you ever felt like you're doing the right thing and it just gets harder? Because if, if you don't pull yourself into the story, I'm just talking, you're going to walk out of here and go eat a sandwich, and you're going to forget about this. How many people in the room have tried to do the right thing? Let's say you tithe, right? And then that week, the bills are bigger, right? Has that ever happened to anybody? Am I speaking to anybody crazy? You try not to gossip or talk bad about people, only to find out that you're being gossiped about and talked bad about. Has that ever happened to anybody? How many people have found that you're, you're trying to do what you're, what you're supposed to do, and when you try to do the right thing, sometimes it just feels so much harder? This is David's world right now. And he's playing, he's playing this game the real way. Like, he's going out, and, and Pastor James already talked about it, go collect me a uh, hundred uh, foreskins or whatever. He's going out and ki- fighting in battles that he should die in. Like, that, that is the level of the suicide missions that he's being sent out after. It's like going after bin Laden 12, 20 or 12 times. Going to this dangerous territory. Going to this dangerous territory. Going to this dangerous territory. And he keeps coming out. He's just, he's being protected. So then the question becomes, what do you do when it gets hard? These, I'm telling you the question that I asked myself. Sorry, it's a little weird. <laughs> but where do you go? Who do you turn to? Is there somebody that you can turn to? Does anybody know what you really battle? Because as we talk about friendship, there are levels here. You can't have friendship without vulnerability and intimacy. That means not sharing what has happened. But it actually means sharing what's going to happen before it happens, meaning in the decision process, you're including your friends so they can help you along the way. There's a level of vulnerability in this that we can't leave out. So I'm going to come back to that. Jonathan is the one who saves David. He has his back. He calms Saul and reminds 
him of David's deeds, his service, and his character. 1 Samuel 19.4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to a servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done? And what has he done has benefited you greatly. Look at his life in the hands. Uh, look, he took his life in the hands when he killed the Philistine. He went out there when nobody else would go out there to fight for us, and he won. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel, and you saw it and were glad. You were happy that he did what he did. Then why would you do wrong to an innocent man like David and killing him for no reason? So Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. Surely as, I, as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. You guys still with me? All right. Good. So we have this friend that's speaking before his father. Now, it's interesting. We think of Jonathan, and we, think, we, we, see, we see the guy, and we see somewhat, at this point, an older man, right? Maybe in his 40s, probably around my age, that he's talking, he's kind of going back and forth with his dad, but his dad is also the King, king Saul. And his dad is also crazy. His dad is crazy now. Saul is being driven mad. The Bible says that. Saul is being driven mad. We already, at this point, Saul has tried to kill David physically twice with a spear. Meaning, we, we all saw this, playing the harp, la da 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 as the Lord liveth, boom, right? This is, what is, this is what has been going on. And David comes back, and he does what the king says, right? So, this is important. For yourselves, when we're talking about who speaks for you, and again, I'm just trying to draw you in here. Who speaks for and encourages the other you in your life? Who cuts through the lies? Who reminds you of where you're going? Who reminds you of what you're becoming? Are you the worshiper or are you the warrior? Are you the usher and greeter? Or are you a lover, acceptor, and welcomer? Are you the cleaner? Or are you the preparer of the family room? The people on the balcony like to cheer you as you run, but they're not with you when you train. The coach is with you when you train, but he does not feel the pain that you're under. Only another runner, someone running in the same race, under the same kind of coach, under the same kind of pressures, truly know what it is that you're going through. And with that, we come to another covenant. Now, you'll see, as you keep reading this, over and over, Jonathan and David pledge themselves to each other. They keep pledging themselves to each other. And it's Jonathan who's initiating. I'm pledging myself to you. You're going to be king. As long as I'm alive, nothing's going to happen to you. As long as I'm alive, I will let you know what's going on, right? So, Jonathan and David make a covenant. In 1 Samuel 20, 13, But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If the... If my dad hurts you and I don't tell you about it, may God have mercy on my soul. If I don't let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. What is this saying? What are they talking about? If David becomes king, the normal progression of things is to wipe out all of your enemies. Kill them so no one's going to come up and rise up against you. Jonathan simply saying, please remember our friendship. Remember the oaths that we've taken. And when it happens, don't forget my family. When, when, when all the enemies are watched, wiped out, remember that me and my household are not your enemy. Count us among your allies. Count us among the people that love you. Do not forget me. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies into account. And Jonathan and David reaffirmed this oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. My life for yours. I am your man forever. Does anybody want to be really daring right now and read something? No, you, you won't. No, it won't work, Caleb. Sorry. All right, I'm going to do it. Jonathan goes to bat for David. So we have this feast that's going on. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. David and Jonathan enact this plan where David's not going to attend the feast. He should be there, but he's not going to be there. Long story short, on the last day of it, he's going to 
King Saul is going to ask. He's like, where's David? And then Jonathan's going to come up with a reply. And how Saul replies will t- determine whether or not David, whether or not Saul wants to still kill David or David's cool and he can come back. And then Jonathan's going to let him know the outcome of it. He's kind of like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an intelligence-gathering mission, all right? So Saul, 1 Samuel 20, 28, is basically asking, where's David? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. So I have to, he had to do it, Dad. He had to do it. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Very reasonable, very measured. I don't detect any sarcasm from the text. Right? Everybody agree? Saul's response. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman! Do you not know that I... Do you think I don't know that you've sided with your son Jesse? To your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. They're in front of like a party here, okay? Just As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. If he's alive, you can never go anywhere. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Go get me somebody to bring me David here, because I have to kill him. Jonathan. But why should he be put to death, Dad? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled a spear to kill him, and Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. I don't know what you do with this. I don't know what you do with this. I don't know. I I don't get it. If this isn't a precursor to Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. In this moment, not only has Jonathan risked, clarified the risk, on the fact that he is not going to ascend to the throne. He has also put himself in harm's way. Everything else we see is just kind of counsel and talk. This is the first moment where Jonathan stands up to his dad, stands up to the king and says, why? And the king's response is without words, it's just death. Boom. Saul must have been a very, very good thrower of the spear. Because they mention it over and over again. So here's a new question. What does friendship cost? Real friendship. What does your friendship cost? Every committed relationship, whether it be in the church, marriage, or friendship, the question must be answered before God on how you loved. Did your friendship mark you? Did you leave part of yourself with somebody else? Does any part of you reside somewhere else? It's a hard thing. There's no way to describe what the Bible calls friendship. This is the best picture. There's a great story about, I don't know if he was a missionary, but this man that was in Africa, and he went around, and he went to the different tribes in Africa, and he went through all of their initiation rituals. And each ritual, he bore a mark, whether it be a scar or or some sort of uh, coloration, a shaving, a branding, whatever it was, he went through it. Until one day he was confronted by a hostile tribe. And to that he responded by taking his shirt off. And the marks from all the different brethren and, and tribes that were upon him, they backed off. Because his friendship, his participation marked him. He was identified by his friendship. And that is the mark that we bear as Christians as well. The question is, does it? Is your life marked by your relationship to Jesus Christ? By your relationship to anything or anyone? So much of our story is our own. So much of what we live in now, and I'm not trying to uh, bash anybody, but so much of our culture is me-centered, my story-centered, or my family story-centered, or my child story-centered, right? we've become so glory-centered, individualized, that we have no sense of this other community. That's why it's so difficult to come to church and come to prayer meetings, because I'm entitled to be tired. You are entitled to be tired. Your son entitled to, you shouldn't be staying there. Weariness is part of the, is, is part of, is part of the deal. All right, let me give you this. Uh, this is a Tim Keller excerpt. I told you, there's gonna be a lot of quotes, but I'm almost done with my material. It is friendship. You will never survive without Friendship. 
If you ever make it through life, that's how important it is. If we go back to the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, you see this cadence over and over. God goes something, God does something, and it was good. God does something else, and it was good. God does this, and it was good. It was good. It was good. Over and over and over again. Then suddenly, you get to Genesis 2, and and strikingly, you have this first malediction. Suddenly, something is said, it is not good. What's not good? It's very startling. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's not good. What's not good? It's in paradise too. What's not good? The answer says, God says is, it is not good for man to be alone. This is pretty startling. Because don't forget, the first human being was in paradise. No sickness, no death, nothing wrong. He had a perfect relationship with God. Yet paradise wasn't enough without deep, loving human relationships. The need that the first human being for a deep, loving human... Uh, the need of that first human being for deep, loving human relationships was so great that he was lonely in the middle of the garden. This was a fruit-bearing paradise. For us, the garden would be the pinnacle of whatever it is that you think you want. It's there. He's living in an ever-bearing garden. There's food aplenty. It's the perfect temperature. He doesn't have to shop. He has work, meaningful work, naming animals, right? He spends his mornings walking with God himself in the cool of the day. And it wasn't enough. Not my words, the Bible. It wasn't enough. It's not good that man should be alone. So what is this? What is it that we're stumbling into? How do you get it? All right, I got a couple stories for you. I was trying to put it in a a way that we can understand. So, oddly enough, politics aside, war. Men fighting together in a war, and women fighting together in a war, would be one example of what this kind of friendship is. Right? It's purposeful. Friendship is supposed to be... You can't just have a friend because you want a friend. That's cool and all. But real friendship has purpose behind it. In war, your purpose is survival and the cause or the target or the goal that you're going for. You're with strangers who know nothing about you, have nothing vested in you, and you have one mission. Watch each other's back, bring each other safe, and complete the mission. There's a oneness as a soldier in battle. Another example, personal application, rock climbing. A number of years ago in my, you know, earlier youth, I loved rock climbing. I don't get to do it very often anymore, and I've got four kids now, so I'm fine with that. But I went, for, um, I, went, I went for classes. I went up to New Hampshire, and I, I'm, I'm with the, I might have even told the story before. I'm with this climbing instructor. It's my second day, and he's a former Marine Corps climbing instructor. It's just me and him. And he's built the same way I, I am. Tall, lanky. I was skinnier at the time. And he says, okay, let's do this. So he puts me on one course or whatever with him or whatever just to see what I could do. And then it got harder, and then it got harder, and then it got harder. And it was the weirdest thing, because I'm reading this, and I knew it, but it didn't click. So now it clicked. His life was in my hands. His life was in my hands. It was just the two of us. I'm, set, I'm setting lines and guides trying to make sure that we don't die on the side of a mountain. A granite face. No sun, no shade. Just the two of us. And it's in these purposeful, direct, intentionally placed moments that we put ourselves that I think we get a glimpse of what friendship is supposed to be. What the Bible is referring to when, he talk, when they talk about friendship. My life for yours. I am your man forever. I remember I took, um, it was like 20 people. We went hiking upstate. And we had to, <laughs> it was bad. Uh, somebody got lost. They, they wandered off the trail. And I said to the crew, I said, listen, you guys get back to the cars. You got to go back down the mountain. I'm going to go look for this person. So my friend, uh, his name was Jean-Maurice, he said to me, you're not going there alone. I'm going with you. And because we were a bit stronger than the other people there, we had all of the garbage. We're carrying like, I don't know, it must have been like 60 pounds in our packs. And now we're going up and down mountains trying to find this girl that just went the wrong way. We finally get out of the trails. We get back, and it's like hours later. Now we've got the fire department, helicopters, police looking for this girl. She was a ditz. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> she was a ditz. I can say that. I'm not saying her name. She was a ditz. Um, and we get back to the cars, and uh, I have to get to work. I have to get to work here on Long Island. I'm upstate. 
So John looks at me. He's like, I got this. Get in my car. So I get into his car, and we brought, broke every law known, known to man driving back. I, I don't know how we did it. We got back like an hour and a half. It's a three-hour drive. And um, the entire way, he's like, eat something. You know, like he's like trying to get me, because I'm, I'm sweating. I'm putting my clothes on over my, my hike. It was, it was a hot mess. But it was a great story, and I, I'll never forget the fact that he wouldn't leave me. Do you guys have a story about someone that wouldn't leave you? Do you? Because that's what we're talking about today. I want to read you one more quote. This is a Lord of the Rings quote. This is Mary talking to Frodo. It all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick with you. You can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secrets of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends. That's the kind of friendship that we're talking about here today. So much of our friendship today is Facebook, right? Facebook isn't friends. How many people lost friends, just by show of hands, over the past 10 years, if you will, because of politics? You got unfriended because of politics, right? Or or they don't follow you anymore, or you don't follow us anymore because of politics. Nothing to do with your friendship. It has to do with your opinions about different things. But now you don't talk anymore. Where I work, I've heard it over and over and over again on both sides. Well, we don't share anything. And if if friendship is transactional, like um, going to the store, if our friendship is based on what you do for me, and at at the moment you stop doing for me, we're no longer friends. If that's the transaction, then no wonder we're so lonely. Do you realize the biggest epidemics that we're facing just right now? Let's just talk about right now. Drugs and opioids, gangs. No friends. No community. Nobody coming to a younger man or a younger woman and saying, I see a future for you. My life for yours. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me to do this. But God has told me something about you that you probably don't understand. Not yet. But my life for yours. Does that make sense? These guys are really quiet. It's all right. It's, it's, it's not light. I told you I was bringing meat. In the court of chaos where David and Jonathan existed, they both were in the same court under the same man who would go mad from time to time and try to kill them from time to time. In that same exact court, the two of them existed. And for whatever reason, they found each other. But they also found common purpose. And what was their common purpose? Their common purpose was Israel. Their common purpose was the future of the people and the promises of God. The common heartstring, you know, the the C.S. Lewis, you too, you too, was an understanding of who God was in their life and that he wouldn't abandon them and that they could trust God. They could trust God with each other. All right. I don't want to get, I don't want to get lost, so that's right. He went back to my notes. All right, so here we go. David and Jonathan were more than just friends. They were also brothers. And there's lots of conversation out there that tries to make it something that it's not. And by that I mean, Jonathan is a brother that David never had. He's arguably the first person David has ever met that doesn't want anything from him and isn't abusing him. From his father, he got tasked, and he was kind of ashamed of him, so he left him out in the field, left, left him out when the prophet came. How big a deal that was for a household? Don't you stay out there? Saul is literally trying to kill him, despite wanting him to win all these wars for him. Jonathan says, wants nothing from David other than his love and his friendship. When Jonathan meets David, he does nothing but give him all that is his, from title to family to future to protection. How is that working in your life? All right, I'm going to leave these now. 
I don't need these now either. It's like deathly quiet in here. I'm taking that that you're, you're, you're processing this. Because if we don't, if we don't get this, your Christianity will remain the same for the rest of your lives. I mean that. If we don't understand what real love is, my life for yours, if we don't get the picture that I am your man forever, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't see that turn, we'll keep doing the same exact thing. When you serve in church, let's just say in music ministry, and you get up there, I speak from this from experience. I put my wife on blast. The fear of not being good enough sometimes. Sorry, I mean. The fear of not being good enough sometimes. You have to separate my fear and you say, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to sing and I'm going to worship despite what I think or feel because I know that the Lord has called me a worshiper. It's in my heart, so I must do it. When you talk about the pastors getting up here, and it's been alluded to, it's been alluded to, but the weight of sharing God's word is, is, is overwhelming. It just gives grace, but the weight is huge. It's not as easy as it, think, as it looks. It really isn't. When you decide to be an usher, do security, do kidmo, the kidmo teachers aren't in here. They're not listening to the service. They're deciding to go teach our children to pass on the story. So when they come to church, they're essentially kind of working. But they're working in a capacity with each other that, that builds relationship. You see, you can't have friendship if you don't intersect somewhere. And if your intersection point is a common thing, like um, cooking, if the only thing you intersect about is cooking, you can intersect with anybody about cooking. They're not necessarily going to sustain your life. You can intersect with anybody about robotics or, or tech or whatever, but is that going to feed your life? You see, when we come into church, what makes church different is what it is. Because everything outside of here is temporal. Botany, cooking, the arts. Pick your highest thing. It's temporal. But in church, in church, this is, this is the difference. This is the place where we gather for the spiritual this is the place where we gather beyond what we see and feel for something greater. i got to give you an example. And I'm going to butcher it, so you're going to have to wait for me because I have to find the quote. Jonathan Edwards was dying with smallpox in Princeton. He knew he wouldn't, his wife wasn't going to make it to see him. So he called his daughter and he said, write this down. He said he wanted this to be for his wife. And here's what he said to his daughter. Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her, I can't, tell her the uncommon union which has so long subsided between her and I, between us, has been such a, such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue on forever. There's something about friendship, about laying your life down for, without gain, I'm not your friend because I want something from you or position or title or popularity. I'm your friend because we're going in the same direction. We're going the same way. And at some point, we have to come to a place where we say, we say in our lives that the things that we're, that we're chasing, and some are very, very good. There are things that we have to do. There's family, there's work, there's responsibilities. These are all true, good things. I won't say anything bad about them. But if we're talking about this text... Does any part of you reside with another? Can you go to the last slide? This picture is a picture of David and Jonathan. It's from Rembrandt. It's following in the steps of those pictures, James. I loved that picture from last week. This is their goodbye. I'm reading from my Bible here. This is 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verse 41. Now, after Saul had thrown the spear at Jonathan, Jonathan went back and they did their code thing and explained 
This is it. So I'll hate your guts. He'll kill you if he sees you again. You have to run. These are their last words together. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together. And, but David more so. Can you see why? Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, as his promise was. He promised him something bad would happen. I would send you off in peace. Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. I am your man forever, even though I won't see you again. I am your man forever. My life for yours. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went to the city. Do you understand why they cried? Do you understand it? This was goodbye. There would be no more moments talking about battles. There would be no more moments shared, no more bread broken. It wasn't just, this is just what we hear about. Their friendship transcended this. There was more to it than just this. Friendship takes what seems kind of benign, you know, oh, okay, he said this about him, said that about him, and it makes it something holy. When Jesus goes on the cross, this is important. When Jesus goes on the cross, we see his arms stretched out, right? And we, oh, Jesus, look at me. And his last words are what? My, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love, has no, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. You do what I command. You are my friends if you do what I command. If I no longer call you, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. It sounds like Jesus is talking about Jonathan. I'm sorry. (laughs) Jonathan lived it. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. I've exposed all that I am to you. I've given all that I am to you. You see every bit of me. You know my plans. You know my plans. You know God's plans. You know his temperament and his appetite. I asked my my nephews to kind of sit together. And my son, my brother Lee and my brother Jamal will attest to this. When they get together, it's a funny thing happens. They can spend hours together, right? And they were going to the same school, and they were riding the same bus, and they would leave each other, and then all of a sudden in my truck, Caleb would be in tears, he'd be sobbing. I'd look over in Jamal's car, Gabriel is sobbing, embarrassing you, yeah, yeah. Lee would be sobbing, I'm like, what's going on, what's wrong, what happened to you? I miss my cousins. You just left them, you're going to see them tomorrow. I know, I still miss them, I don't want to be with them. Drove me crazy. Drove Lee crazy. Drove Jamal crazy. It's like, what is going on here? You spend every waking moment of your life together, and then you, you're apart for five minutes, and now you're bawling and crying. You're going to see him in the morning for crying out loud. Stop it! Friendship. Friendship. They don't get anything from each other. They have nothing to give each other but a smile and a high five and a hard time. <laughs> Friendship. That's how it starts. Purposefulness is where it leads. So City on the Hill, brothers and sisters, how is your friendship status doing? How are we holding up? Does this resonate with you? I want to encourage you before I end. Here's my encouragement. I come to the table, and we know the story of Jesus 
sacrificing himself, his body and his blood. We understand that because we talk about it all the time and you understand that for the most part. But have you ever thought about it as my life for yours? Have you ever thought about when you're in a hard spot that Jesus' reply to your hard spot is, I am your man forever. I am your God forever. Jesus doesn't speak like a, like a lamb or whisper in his defense of you. He roars. He's uncontainable in his love for you. He gave everything in his love for you. Do you understand? And when you come to this table today, and I, I mean this, I, I, can only, I can only say this to you, how violent a gift this is. And it costs you nothing. You didn't do this. You don't deserve this. There's nothing that you will ever do that will deserve, that make you worthy of this, except for his body and his blood. Because when we take the table, we are clothed again, we are reminded again of who we are, that our identity is not our own, but Jesus. So when the Lord looks at us, he sees his son. How selfish would we be not to share it? How selfish would we be not to share it? So Lord, as we come to a close here, Father, we ask that we would have a heart like Jonathan, a heart like you. Lord, we want to give it away. We want our lives not to be marked by our agenda, Father, but by yours. Lord, our prayer right now, Lord, is that you would speak to us you would speak to us and tell us. Open our eyes. Show us, Lord, the areas that you're saying, I want you to be a friend here. Show us the areas, Lord, where we're not letting a friend in. Father, this love is scandalous. It breaks boundaries. It breaks bondage. It breaks generations. It breaks identity. Because it's so radical and it's so fierce, Father. Lord, as we take the table today, would we get a taste of it? Father, will we have the courage to live it? Lord, may we not stand on the sidelines with our slings and our stones all around us and not throw where you're telling us to throw, not step out where you're telling us to step out, not take a risk where you're telling us to risk, not being vulnerable where you're asking us to be vulnerable. There are stories in this place. There are people in this place. There are hearts in this place that need another. But unless you take a risk, unless you go and listen to what the Lord is saying to you, whether it be to approach somebody and just love on them, or whether it be to raise your hand and get, get to somebody that's going to pray for you and pray for you real because you're going to tell them what's really going on. You can't have a friend unless you expose yourself. There are gifts in this room. There's prayer in this room. I, I shared about this on Wednesday. I have to go back. There are gifts in this room, prayer in this room, songs in this room, stories in this room that are being locked in, in chains because of, because of verbiage. Think of David. Think of, think of the things that David had pr- processed. Jonathan is the first person to come to him and says, listen to me, listen to me. Take it. You're a king. From his moment with Samuel to his moment with Jonathan, he, no one talked to him about being a king anymore. He stayed with the sheep. He probably got his butt kicked by his brothers time and time again. This is, this is the moment where David's like, what, that, that thing with Samuel was real? Really? And he behaved accordingly because he understood the grace. We live under the same grace. And I, 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 I say to you, brothers and sisters, please don't come to the table with entitlement. Don't come to the table with the shoulds. This isn't about that. This is about radical grace, radical friendship. It's not about what you can do for me. My life for yours. And God's response, I am your God forever. Amen? Amen. Ushers, you can come forward. As you come to the table, just as they're preparing themselves, I want to encourage you. 
reading this, mining in this, immediately you see your flaws. You see how inadequate a friend you really are. How inadequate a person you are, despite your best intentions. This isn't a condemning story, though. You see, the end of the story is David becomes king and remembers his good friend Jonathan, who is dead, who died with his father, died with his brothers. And David says, is there anyone from the house of Jonathan that I can bless? And there's one. There's his son, Mephibosheth. I, I hope I didn't butcher that, but that's his name. Mephibosheth is <laughs> lame. And David finds him, blesses his family, gives him all that his grandfather Saul had, gives him all his servants. He won't have to work a day in his life. And he sat at the able table for the rest of his life. If, we don't, if we're only living for this moment of the story, there's nothing to pass on. So come up here expecting not only to pass on, but asking the question, am I the friend that I need to be? Do I need a friend? Do you need a friend? You can say that. You can say, I need a friend, Lord. Help me to have a real friend. Amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.